Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. Despite the name, it's not just for contracting officers. If you work anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. This episode is sponsored by ProPricer, the number one proposal pricing and cost analysis software used by federal agencies and government contractors. Learn more by visiting ProPricer.com slash podcast. ProPricer is not just for defense contractors. There's a government edition too. Man, when I was a contracting officer, I wish I had a tool like this. It would have saved me so much time and effort. ProPricer's Government Edition can really simplify your agency's cost analysis process. In just a few clicks, you can seamlessly import contractor cost data into a secure database environment, create baseline independent government cost estimates, and compare data across multiple cost proposals. Yes, a contracting officer, I spent way too much time with my, either myself or my contract specialist trying to make sense out of the different proposals, and this would have simplified that. ProPricer includes lots of must-have features like offer cost normalizing, custom reporting, what-if analysis, and ProPricer is on the GSA schedule, so it's really easy to acquire. Find out how ProPricer can help your government organization by visiting ProPricer.com slash podcast. The topic today is performance incentives. This is part of our series on incentive contracting that includes separate episodes on schedule incentives and cost incentives. Let's get started. We're talking incentives again. How do we incentivize good or even great performance? And we go back to, we have two options, the two extremes, really. Extreme number one is, well, payment is, is payment for work done. That's good enough, right? And then the other extreme is we need to incentivize everything. And that can get really kind of crazy. So we try to go somewhere in between. And in the incentive universe, it's really kind of finite. You have faster, better, cheaper really, but you, most of the time you can only pick two. And yes, there are cases where all three of those apply, but it's really hard to get all three of them. So when you're prioritizing one thing, you're usually going to be doing that at the expense of another. Right. Performance, schedule, and cost can't all be the top priority or <laughs> you get none of them. Yeah. If, if everything's a priority, then nothing's a priority. And incentives, again, they're like comp, compensation plans for salespeople. And it, if you're in sales, a comp plan, it drives behavior. And what I mean by that is if you tell the sales rep that they get incentivized for selling X product, they're going to sell X product. It's how they get paid. And then likewise, you change it and say, okay, I need you to sell Y product. They're going to sell Y product. It's how they get paid. So it's, when, you, when you move the comp plan, you, you motivate people to run that direction. And incentives are the same way in government contracts. Today, we're going to be talking about performance incentives, specifically performance incentives. But before we get started, let's say a little thanks Thank you to Raphael Williams. He's a contract specialist in the U.S. Navy, and he's an active listener slash liker slash sharer of our content on LinkedIn. So thanks for that. Okay, let me recap incentive contracts. We, we have a whole episode. Episode 44 is about incentive contracts overall, but FAR 16401 defines incentive contracts. Appropriate when a firm fixed price contract is not appropriate – and the required supplies or services can be acquired at lower costs and in certain instances with improved delivery or technical performance by relating the amount of profit or fee payable under the contract to the contractor's performance. Ooh, that's that, a lot of reading. That's easy to read. <laughs> it's hard to do. What it's saying is incentive contracts are appropriate when if you pay a little more, you will get some change in performance. There's fixed price incentive contracts and cost reimbursement incentive contracts. We're not going to get into that here. 
what we're talking about is what can be incentivized. And it falls into three categories, cost, schedule, and performance. We have separate episodes for each of those. Today, we're talking about performance incentives. Two quick reminders before we talk about those performance incentives. Before you do any type of incentive contract, FAR 16401D says that a determination and finding has to be signed by the head of the contracting activity approving that. So that's somebody high up has to approve that, yes, using this incentive structure is in the best interest of the government. And the last thing to remember is if you have any incentives at all in your contract, you have to include a cost incentive. It's very dangerous to include if you just had a performance incentive or just had a schedule incentive, you would be able to achieve great performance or very quick delivery if cost was not an object. But <laughs> everywhere, cost matters, I think, especially in the government world. Yeah. Right. So performance incentives. So incentivizing performance, it's a tricky business. Um, if it were easy, everybody do it, right? Also, let me give you some examples of why. So in, a, in performance incentives, does the government clearly know what they want to incentivize from a performance perspective? And can they, can they clearly communicate that to industry is, is this is what we want. This is the end result that we're looking for. And then does industry clearly understand what performance will earn the incentive? Yeah. So, so how, how will it actually be measured and assessed? Do I know what they want to achieve? And do I know how I will be judged on whether or not I've achieved it? That's really important on the industry side. Yeah, and this is not easy to get this kind of communication. And then do both sides know what the trade-offs are going to be? Because there are always trade-offs. Yeah, and it, it, it all starts with communication. You have to understand the government may say, I want more and more of this. But if they don't understand what they're giving up to get more and more of that, it might be giving up just money, but there might be other other things that need to go away to get more of that, but it needs to be communicated ahead of time. So let's get, let's get started with FAR time. Performance incentives are in FAR 16402-2. So A describes it. 402-2A says, performance incentives relate to specific product characteristics, like a missile range or aircraft speed, or other specific elements of the contractor's performance. We already kind of said that, didn't we? Paragraph B says, to the ma maximum extent practicable, positive and negative performance incentives shall be considered in connection with service contracts for the performance of objectively measured tasks when quality of performance is critical and incentives are likely to motivate the contractor. Whew, that's a mouthful. So there's, there, there's penalties as well as rewards, it sounds like. Yeah, and that's an interesting one because having we've seen negative, I've seen negative performance incentives. That if, for example, in service contracts, if you don't fill these positions within X amount of time, you get a one percent ding on your your fee, which that, that, doesn't help you fill more positions. <laughs> may, may, that may be counterproductive. Who knows? Yeah, I pick at this because negative performance incentives. It's kind of an oxymoron. It's it's punishment. Let's call it what it is. Right. It's you know a negative performance incentive is a nice way of saying I'm going to smack you upside the head when you don't do this right, and that's that's not yeah. good communication. It's like, it's like in the uh, in Wall Street, you achieve negative growth. <laughs> there you go. That's not, known as a loss. Right. So right. this is it's very difficult to craft meaningful and effective performance incentives. I mean, realistically, if you're if particularly if you're doing this without talking to your your counterparts, right? Because there's always a trade-off. You, know, you talked about that in a minute ago, this idea of there's always a trade-off with the cost incentive. 
Right. You can achieve incredible performance if you're willing to spend enough. The problem is it's usually unclear what the real goal is. And what I mean by that is do you want the maximum performance? Do you want just the best that you can get up to a certain cost level? Do you want maybe just a little bit better than what can currently be delivered but without too much cost increase? So you write up this performance plan that you think describes what you want, but you need to communicate in in words what you really want, and then government and industry get together and make sure that the incentives that you've laid out actually incentivize you to achieve what you're looking for. Sounds easy when you describe it that way. Yeah, I'll get more into that later. Back to the FAR, 402-2E. I'll take this one. So performance tests or assessments, I love this. It says they're essential in order to determine the degree of attainment of performance targets. Well, no kidding, right? So for products, the contract has to specify, as is, as be as specific as possible anyway, establishing test criteria, like you know, how are you going to test this? What are you going to use instrumentation, precision, and data interpretation? Like what's the definition of better, right? And for services, I'd say it's even harder. Because now you have performance standards, like a quality level of services. To and you're trying to describe performance in, in words instead of using math like, like you would for, for testing you know, something technical. Yeah, exactly. How do you describe the services better? That's, that's tough to do. So what you come down to, like you use help desk services as an example. What you come down to is usually performance metrics. Like help desk will respond – to request for help within a certain amount of time or will process a certain amount of help tickets in a certain amount of time. Those are easy to measure. What's harder to measure is the quality of the solution of those. Yeah, and, and a great point here is that if you say, okay, you, you need to answer the phone in five minutes. Okay, I can do that. But what's the goal? To actually like have the phone call, phone call be effective and solve the problem? And have, have you rebooted? Say, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They emailed you back and said, reboot. Yeah, Thanks. not helpful. All right. So, yeah, so that, that, that's why this is hard. So that, but this doesn't happen without communication. Right. And so paragraph F, the next one, and I like this one because it talks about the idea of because performance incentives present complex problems in content administration, right? The CO should negotiate them in full coordination with the rest of the team. Yeah. By the rest of the team, it actually says government engineering and pricing specialists. So – Performance incentives, do not attempt alone, is yeah, what it exactly. says. Don't try this at home by yourself. All right, and the last bit of FAR that we will discuss here, paragraph G talks about changes to the contract, and this is where the real peril is. You have to understand, if you're doing a, an engineering change to a contract later on, what effect does that have on the performance incentives? If you're adding additional requirements or removing requirements, you also have to factor that into the, the performance incentive equation. It, you can really complicate things. Yeah, it, 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 this goes back to you can't do it alone. You got you to gotta understand the overall impact you're having. Okay, when are we thinking about incentives in the, the time zone? So in the acquisition time zones, as you're doing your market research and as you're writing the RFP, that's a great time for the government and for industry to be communicating and talking about incentives. Is there something that could be incentivized here? How should we incentivize it? The back and forth is super important. And then on the execution time zones, 
it's even more fun because now you're making sure that those agreements and, and, and the, the concept you came up with during the market research zone, now you got to execute them. You got to be communicating and you got to understand that when you change anything in the contract, as we just mentioned, it's going to impact the incentive. Yep. Across and the- here's when you find out if those fancy formulas that you wrote to determine what is successful performance, here's, here's when you figure out if those formulas actually work. And do you have all of the inputs that you need? Doesn't make sense. And then the last execution time zone, I would say this applies is that the recompete is look back and go, okay, if we're recompeting the contract and we had incentives last time, or if we didn't, what can we do differently? Did they help or not? And and it's okay to say, whoops, that didn't work. Let's focus on why it's important to understand performance incentives. Incentivizing great performance may be a good thing, but it adds complexity. It's not easy and it's not free to get greater performance may take more money or may take giving up something else you want. And you got to you got to make sure that juice is worth the squeeze. I mean, is it worth the effort that it takes to have these incentives in there? The upside may be from of a performance incentive is you're going to get better performance. You're going to get more than the minimum, and we all want that, right? So that that's an incentive. Maybe we want more than minimum, but not yeah. if it costs me more. Or or, or or maybe I do want more than the minimum and I'm willing to pay more, but but you got to yeah, everybody needs to be clear on what the definition is. Exactly. That is. And you gave you may get more offers on the RFP. Because yeah, I'd I'd say you you might if the incentives are attractive enough that it steers your potential offers towards you, towards you instead of towards all the other acquisitions out there. If they have a p- possibility to make more profit, and they think they can actually achieve more profit by meeting the incentives that you set up, which means they understand the incentives, then you may actually get more offers. Yeah. One more thing, performance incentives may move the technology needle. And what I mean is commercial industry is driven by the market. So technology will improve as the market demands. But there's some things that the government wants that there is no demand for in the outside market. And to really get the investment and to move those things forward, this is where incentives may help. Yeah. And the downside, because there's always you know, upside and downside, right? Performance incentives may take more time, more money, and more effort just to manage them, which goes back to the juice may not be worth the squeeze. But, but more importantly is that if you have a complex technical spec and there are special tests that are required that, to make sure that it actually met the standard, well, now you're adding the cost to those tests. And the, and cost- the time to, to do the testing, it, it could get really complicated. Yeah, and you want to keep it really simple. And you, you may also repel technical expertise if the incentives are not clear, i.e. communication didn't happen effectively, or, or they're not compelling. If industry doesn't understand how they would earn the incentive, they may not want to bid on it. They need to understand how to make it happen. And the incentive has to be worth something to them. If the incentive is, oh, you can get 1% more profit for doing this, if it takes them a lot more time and money that they would rather spend on something else, 1% may not be worth their time. And this is a great example of, of communication is that 1%, depending on the industry, might be a, worth it. And other ones, not even close. Yep. So talk about it during the RFI. What is an incentive that will actually move the needle for industry? Because it might be 20%. It might be bigger than you can even imagine, but you don't know until you ask. Otherwise, because you're, you're wasting time. If, if it's not going to motivate them to, to act, then it's not going to have this incentive that you think it does. Let's talk specifically the government side. Incentive contracts can provide the government with better 
and more capable products or better and higher quality services if you can figure out how to measure those betters and what (laughs) rewards will motivate those betters. Performance incentives also can motivate a higher level of performance. Thus the name. That's funny. So my favorite example. <laughs> Did <I> say that. <laughs> my favorite example is a solicitation that the government released for the first aircraft. This is the first contract that the Wright brothers had to deliver an aircraft to the government. It was a performance incentive contract. So because the way the laws were at the time, the government couldn't pay a bonus for delivering something beyond their spec. The specification was they needed an aircraft that could fly 40 miles an hour. They wanted more, but there's no way to pay a bonus. So the way they solved that, they set up a scale that says if you achieve 40 miles per hour on your test flight, you get this price. But we also need you to quote what happens if you deliver 39 miles per hour or 38 miles per hour, or 37 miles per hour. So they, they, the way they structured it was you get 100% of your quote for 40. You get 90% of your quote if you only achieve 39. You get 80% if 38. And it goes down to where if you can't hit 36 miles an hour, rejected, you don't get anything. But if you achieve greater, 41 miles per hour gets you 110% of your quote. 42 miles per hour gets you 120%, and so on. By doing this, they got around the whole achieving more than the spec because they actually had a price in the contract for each level of performance. Now, I could talk about the details of the contract forever. It's pretty cool. But they actually ended up much (laughs) – 10 months into the deal, they actually ended up achieving over 42 miles per hour, and they got $5,000 extra for it. And $5,000 at the time, you could probably buy a new house – or two new houses. Who knows? A mansion. <laughs> yeah, five thousand dollars. Yeah, we, we will. We will. We will have fun with the Wright Brothers contract because there's a lot. It's a hundred years ago, and it's amazing how much his. We, yeah, we this was 1907, 1908. And, and, and so much of it is just really spot on. The original performance incentives. So that leads us to the industry side. Why should industry care? Industry needs to be able to provide that feedback. The trick from the industry side with performance incentives is they only work if they give industry the opportunity for more profit. Yeah, there's lots of other parts, but they all revolve around profit. They may be able to sell more products in the future. They may develop a better thing that allows them to sell to a different group of customers or allow them to to gain an advantage in the market and sell even more. But that all comes back to making more money, right? Well, and so the the thing that, that I didn't really see as clearly as a contracting officer that I see clearly now. So we say this all comes back to profit at the contract level, and that's because while the mission may be larger than that, maybe the Wright brothers were all about making the aircraft go farther. Maybe the idea that that was their big mission was to, maybe their idea was to actually focus on making better aircraft, et cetera. But in the context of this contract, their goal is to make money for making this aircraft in this contract. Right. And, what I, and so I, you lose track of that sometimes. You say, well, it shouldn't be all about profit. Okay, the company, the mission, the overall relationship that you have with them isn't all about money. We get that. But the incentive, the performance incentive has to be clearly related to profit or it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, they're not going to be around to, to deliver it or to deliver the next one if they don't make money on this one. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, it sounds really 
it sounds like we're being very short-sighted when we say that the purpose of a performance incentive is for the contractor to make more money. But in the context of at the ground level, we talk about this a lot on, on the podcast, at the ground level of the contract, that has to be true. And so we relate this back to the compensation plan. A compensation plan that works clearly delineates how the salesperson is paid. And so a performance incentive is the same way. It needs to clearly delineate how the contractor is paid more profit. Yeah, so I, w- I was hinting on that before when we were talking about how hard it is to craft meaningful and effective performance incentives. Both sides need to understand what the real goal is because it's possible to write a complicated performance incentive formula that doesn't actually incentivize what you thought it did. And I know when I was on the government side, there's lots of dangers where people had great ideas of here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to write this thing that they, they get this much more money for delivering this. But on the industry side, they're doing the calculations and saying, yeah, but if I deliver something a little less than this, then I actually maximize my profit. So I'm going to stop when I get to this point. If the government really wants even more, they need to make sure that that is the point where industry makes the most money. If you're not talking about that up front, it's really difficult for both sides to understand where the sweet spot is. Yeah, and this goes back to the targeting exercise. And so a suggestion would be if you're not targeting opportunities that that are the right fit, you're not going to have this conversation with industry. Industry is not going to have the same conversation with with government, and the communication doesn't happen. And so, for example, on the industry side, if an RFP is already out and has performance incentives in it that you can't meet or you can't make money on, just walk away. (laughs) Because the likelihood of the government going back and redoing those and getting HCA approval, and there's much much gnashing of teeth to get these things through. Because you just go in and wing it, you're likely to get creamed. And so targeting is a big deal here is you have to have that communication. Yeah, if you're not involved in the structure of those incentives, it's unlikely that they, the incentives will actually equal the point where you can make the most profit. Or, or even any, depending on how you set it up. All right, let's summarize this. Key points, Kevin. The, the biggest one for me is communicate deeply before you even start this process of deciding what, incentives, what performance incentives to use. Because it's really easy to screw them up. So don't do this alone. Um, in industry, don't assume that the government knows what these performance incentives can be. This takes intentional communication from both sides. Yeah. You have to understand what, what is the overall goal we're trying to reach? What, do we try, what performance do we actually want to improve on? And again, we go back to the comp plan. It's, the comp plans are really simple. The ones that work well are really simple. Yep. Salesmen will sell what makes them the most money. Yeah, it's how they, it's how they eat, how they feed their kids. They want, that's how salesmen and saleswomen yep. live. Want them to sell something else? You just change that. And this is this is where it gets to. You have to understand what you're actually incentivizing. For me, the key with performance incentives is the law of unintended consequences still applies here. You will get exactly what you incentivize, potentially at the cost of things that, that you don't incentivize. So if, if you want it bigger, you're going to get it bigger. But it might take a heck of a lot longer to build it. And it might cost a heck of a lot more if those things also aren't part of the incentive plan. And this is why it's so hard to incentivize multiple things. Just think if you pick one performance parameter and you put an incentive that if we get more of this thing, you'll get more money industry. Well, money aside, to get more of this thing, you might get less in another performance parameter. Like car will go faster. It will accelerate faster but gas mileage goes down. 
right? Or, or it weighs less. So just think safe. when you see, right? Just think when you start to incentivize all the different performance characteristics of a car in this example. You know, we wanted we wanted to accelerate faster. We wanted to get better gas mileage. We want it to be safer, which requires more and heavier safety equipment, which is directly contrary to accelerating faster and getting better gas mileage. All these things interact. So what I'm trying to say is it's hard to incentivize one thing because they impact the other things. If you try to incentivize everything, then you get this mess of conflicting incentives. And in the end, how do you measure them? And how do you, how do you get what you want? Because you can't have everything. And it's a great example of why it's important to communicate what, what's the most important thing from the user's perspective. Right. Because hey. the most important thing from the industry's perspective is to make money on the deal. And industry yeah. will behave in a manner that makes them the most profit or builds the potential for the most future profit into the deal. Incentives that don't take that piece into account will, will fail. So the government must align their desires – in English, this is what we actually want to achieve with industry's potential for profit. And when those things come together, it's a beautiful thing. Both sides are happy. And we'll, we'll save that for a whole other training event or podcast or something because there's, there's much more to talk about. Stop me now. Stop me yeah. now. Okay. That's it for today. Talk to you later, Kevin. All right. See you, Paul. Okay. That's it for this episode of the Contracting Officer Podcast. Thanks again to our sponsor, ProPricer. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the podcast, send me a note at paul at contractingofficerpodcast.com. Also, join the Contracting Officer Podcast Network Group on LinkedIn. And to test drive the Skyway community, check out the free webinars at skywaywebinar.com. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.